Okay, I got one thumb. I got two thumbs. Okay. Ah, well, let's see. Before I get started here today, a couple of things I need to talk about really quickly. Uh, number one is that uh, these are starting to show up. Scientists are testing a pill to make dogs stop aging. And, of course, you know that's Luke 17. Eventually, the, the aging process is going to be defeated. That's one of the prophecies of the Bible. Humans, humans can start living longer once the FDA does this, which is declare death a disease instead of a process. And so if it's a disease, then it's, there's more uh, opportunity, more access for different pharmacological uh, solutions. So pay attention to that. It's an end times event. And, uh, so as is, was the time in Noah, so shall be the time in Lot. So shall be the end of the age, right? And one thing, some sad news here from Cliffside. Uh, Mark Lindloff, a friend of mine who lived with, he was a roommate of mine. He, he used to be upstairs with his daughter Diana. Uh, he played on my softball teams. He worked on my crews. Uh, just a, a great, great man. Uh, very high intelligence. Calm and, and kind. Just one of those people that are rare that you go through in life and see he passed away. Complications to, to thoracic uh, heart surgery. His heart just gave out eventually. They tried to save him. Unfortunately, he just had too many issues and he did not survive. So his funeral, I think, is today. I'm not sure. But uh, he's down in Louisiana or his family's down in Louisiana. Anyway, just uh, what a great man. And we lost him for a while. Okay. Yeah, uh, he, he has, there, there's a place for him for sure. <sighs> January 22nd, 2023, lecture discussion number 190 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. And in case you were wondering, uh, we remain pretty much where we have been mired for the previous eight lectures or so. And it may be off by that. Dave would know. Is it eight or nine? How, how many of these have I done on this particular subject? Have I got it? Okay, this is eight, so we only got about, what, two, three hundred to go. Yeah, and then I'll finally have it all in a nice bow tie, right? I, uh, I described... Uh, Previously, our current status is clean up on aisle 188 because lecture 188 was a mess. And so I'm still trying to clean that up as best I can. And, and uh, hence, uh, we endure. The process, of course, is not quantitative to any perceptible degree. I'm not making any progress. How about that? I'm doing the best I can. So far, I should say so far. And hopefully, today, some uh, computable movement will manifest. Probably not. Uh, this is Cliffside after all. Abandon all hopefullies, those who enter here. Is hopefullies a word? Can you pluralize hopefully? Obviously, the definition would be a plurality of hopefully, right? If I have a hopefully, can I have hopefullies? Perhaps two or more hopefully would be a hopefullies. I think I'm on to something. <laughs> Why is it pretty much? I say that a lot. Why is it pretty much? Is there an ugly much? If there's, a, if there's a pretty much, there has to be an ugly much, right? I submit that, the, that therefore that today's lecture just might qualify as an ugly much. And, or the same thing, different day. But, uh, okay, I'm going to begin today with Dimebox Dan the Man. He sent me an email and uh, he requested answers. I mean, how... For three questions, he had, he wanted answers for three questions. I know how presumptuous, uh, audacious we might think. And three answers is a year's worth of answers the way I operate, isn't it? But to the surprise of everyone I know listening, I actually responded. I really did. I gave him incomplete answers. Who can believe it? I know. Call the hospital. Anyway, Dan, Dimebox Dan the man wanted to clarify Matthew 16:18, which is Christ's response to Peter's answer of Matthew 16:16, 16, 16, and Matthew 16:17 16, is the explanation for Matthew 
the explanation for Matthew 16:18, and Christ's question is, of course, in Matthew 16:15. Everybody got that? Nobody's got it, but that's okay. Do I need to repeat it? I could, but I won't. Would it matter if I did repeat it? Probably not at all. So, to be fair, oh, and I did get a, a lovely phone call from a lady in Ireland, and I promise not to mention her. But I can't help it, because she was really terrific. And uh, I, I, I told her, I, I said one thing to her. I said, I believe that the, the language of the new city of Jerusalem is Hebrew, and that is in Zephaniah. But if Hebrew can, Hebrew can be spoken with an Irish accent, then that would be the best of all worlds. Because it's just a delight to hear. I'm always shocked by these people that call me and write to me from all over the world. Uh, it just stuns me. And it's very good for my morale. Okay. To be fair, Matthew 16 through 20 is ugly much unsettled. How's that? Huh? It's unsettled in the halls of these theological institutions. Uh, they just don't get it. And so I, I call them the flatulent, uh, flatulent, flatulent seminarians. And before you uh, accuse me of disrespect, look up the definitions of flatulence. And then your apologies will be accepted and you can use your phones. So where was I? Okay, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. So we've got to read this. Or I've got to read it. And I hope you follow along. Some of you are hopefully are reading it already. And that means there's two hopefully, so that's a hopefully. So Matthew 16, we're going to start at 13. Okay. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Notice that the I am is hidden in there. I hope you do see that. So they said to him, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. He said, to, he said to them, but who do you say I am? He did it again. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And actually, it's not Simon, but that's, we'll get to that in a minute. For flesh and blood has not revealed that, this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So much going on there. And I'm bringing it up primarily because the process that it takes to get through Matthew 16, 13 through 20 is actually quite revelatory in the sense that it teaches you things. What I'm trying to say meaning here is if you are able to calculate Matthew 16 through 20, uh, you're going to be able to transpose that the mechanism that you use there uh, to our current agenda of super-deterministic Calvinism and transitory momentary Arminianism. So that's what I'm trying to do today. And, and we're adhered to this uh, Calvinism-Arminian debate. And some might say that we're frozen here, and we probably are a little bit. Okay, then, so what's the correct apparatus to resolve Matthew 16, 13 through 20? How do we do it? Well, it goes something like this. First, diagnose and separate that which you think is the primary, the foremost, the first piece of information, the most important piece of information in that passage. The point of convergence, if you will. And that which from everything else diverges, radiates from. And I submit that this is Exodus 3.14, the E-ah, the E-ah, or the E-ah. Exodus 3:14. That's the I am that I am. The Greek, of course, as you know, is the ego. E I M I. So this is the Hebrew. That's the Greek. And then, and again, it's the I am that I am. Uh, that's why I brought it up to begin with. The beingness of Christ. The fact that he says, I am the being. The, or, the first being. 
it. I have being this is what he is saying. And the Hebrew ayah carries with it, carries with it the, the haya, the haya, the, or the nefesh ruah haya, the living soul. So Christ says, who do you say I am? Well, now you know what's going on right there. Christ is saying that he is the existent one. He is the living one. He's the life, John 11:25. From him all life descends or comes from him. That's what he's saying there. So clearly, obviously, the source of all life, the I am, is the foremost, the crucial element from which all of the others will connect in that passage of 16, 13 through 20. Matthew. I've got to get in a position where I'm not creaking the floor. Okay, so, so far so good, I hope. And next we should begin harvesting all of the I am's in Scripture. Everywhere that he has said that he is the I am, this is how you figure out what's going on in 16, 13 through 20 of Matthew. You start going for this primary position or information. And, and, you, and you start going through all of them. And, and you know what they are. They're everywhere, right? you got John 6.35, 6.41, 6.48, 6.51, which is Genesis 1.3. John 8.12 and Genesis 1.3 are the same thing. The light of the life. Uh, you, you have uh, John 10.7, John 10.9, and of course John 10.7 and John 10.9 is Genesis 6.16 because he's talking about he is the door, and of course the door to the ark, right, gets closed by God. So you, go to, you have to grab Genesis 6.16, Exodus uh, 12.22. Uh, you have John 11.25, John 14.6, John 15.1, John 15.5, and that is the obvious passages where the I am is. Those are the obvious ones. Matthew 16, 13 through 20, not so obvious, but they clearly it's clearly there. And so you, those, those will associate immediately to Matthew 16, 15, and, and you should all be aware that there's many, many more of those out there. Uh, you have the seven I am's of the Gospel of John. John, everybody recognizes those. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And if you, if you look at the bread of life, of course, that's going to be Exodus 16, isn't it? That's the manna, the bread of life. The, the, the good shepherd, Zechariah 13, 7, Zechariah 11, 4 through 17. 1 Kings 13, that's the withered arm. The good shepherd, the evil shepherd has a withered arm. So every time you get to the good shepherd, you're in with the evil shepherd, and the evil shepherd's got the withered arm. So now you go to Mark 3, 3, and you look at withered arms. The light of life, Christ said, I am the light of life. Again, Revelation 21, 23, I'm the way, Matthew 17, 4, or 7, 14, the vine, Zechariah 3, 10, Genesis 49, 10 through 12. I could do that for hours. Just keep giving you verses that will associate to Matthew 16, 13 through 20. The point is, yea, is finally some kind of point. The I am, the Yah, or the ego imi, Without dispute is the most powerful statement in the Bible, in all of Scripture. And it radiates, as I said, it just infiltrates the whole Bible. It transmits, it touches all of Scripture. Thousands and thousands of verses. There's 31,000 in there. It probably touches all 31,000, either directly or indirectly. Every verse probably, if, if one were to devote a lifetime of tracing, the I am. You would expect that, right? He's the living thing. It's a living Bible. So a living Bible would associate immediately with the living one. Okay, with that said, that's the mechanism. This is how you calculate the meanings of passages or a specific verse. This is how you do it. If you don't do it this way, what's going to happen to you? You're going to go into the ditch and we'll never find you again and we'll have to dig you out. Okay, so this is how you do it. This is how you calculate the meanings of passages or a specific verse. And again... Taking Matthew 16, 18, what does it mean? Is Peter the rock? Is he the rock? Upon this rock, I build, I build my church, he said. Well, first we decide why Simeon was renamed Peter. Because he renames him there, right? So it used to, his name was Simeon. Now he, he renamed him Peter. With this, when, you, when God renames somebody, what do you have to do now? Okay, where do you start? And how many of you said what? 
Genesis 3.16 because that's where Adam renames the woman, right? So every time somebody is renamed because Christ God himself. Do you think God himself, when he renamed Simeon, the rock, and then I'll get to what the rock really means when he says it about Simeon. When he renames him the rock, do you think he knows that Adam renamed Eve? Even renamed a woman would be more correct. Excuse me. <coughs> so, how about Jacob? Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight. Jacob became who? Israel. And and so, we're going to talk about the renaming of the mother of all living. The, the Eve, Jacob, with uh, being Israel. Those are those absolutely have to be figured out. Why? How? How do they connect to Peter being renamed? I'm sorry, Simeon being renamed Peter. What about Daniel, Mishael, and Hananiah? We hardly ever use their Jewish names. We change them to Meshach, Abednego. And those are Babylonian names. I made that point my whole life. Why would you, why would you take the names that, that Nebuchadnezzar gave them? Nebuchadnezzar has an image, right? He's a type of antichrist at some point. How about Abram, what was he renamed to? Abraham. Why? How does that, how does that connect? God himself renames Abraham. God himself renames Simeon. So I've got that alongside of Eve. I have Sarai become Sarah. Can't leave her out. Saul becomes Paul. And you should note that Saul carries with it this meaning of death. So Saul, meaning of death, becomes Paul. Paul attaches to small or tiny. And Paul being now small will explain Peter being Petros, by the way. Ugh. I don't have time because if I move, it's going to create watch. I need longer arms. So why does God rename? And then, of course, we've got probably the most important verse of all of them, Revelation 2.17, because that's where everybody that is saved gets a new name, gets a white stone, and has hidden manna, is given hidden manna. So that all of those now, now you can begin. I didn't give you everything. I gave you enough to where you can start to say, why does God rename Simeon Peter? And it's quite common to discover commentary that declares Peter to be the rock. Who does that? Who do you know that says this is the rock of the church? Who knows that? What, what denomination? What? No, it's not, unfortunately, but it is the Catholic Church. Oh, did you say? I thought you said Calvinism. Catholicism. Well, I can't hear, and I can't see, and I can't taste anything, and I can't smell anything. So you need to give me dispensational grace right there. Okay, good. It's quite common to discover commentary that declares Peter to be the rock. They say that Peter is the foundation boulder that is the cornerstone of the church. He is the rock. That's what they say. He is the rock that Christ is talking about. And millions of Catholics, for example, think this is so, but it is not so, and it is easy to figure out that it is not so when you go out and get all of the connecting information and you have all of the information and not a little tiny piece of information and you begin to draw conclusions based on a mass of information instead of what you think is true. And that's the problem again. I can repeat this. I can rant and rave here. The problem with the hyper-Calvinistic, super-deterministic position is they don't go and get all the information. They don't want the information or they can't find the information. Either one is a bad thing. The same thing for the Armenian position. Christ himself is the rock. It says so in Daniel 2.45, Deuteronomy 32.3-4, Daniel 2.35. Did I say 45 or 35? I hope I didn't repeat that. 2.45 and 2.35 of Daniel both say that. 1 Corinthians 10.4, Isaiah 28.16, Romans 9.33, Matthew 28.2 says Christ is the rock. Christ removes the rock from his own tomb. John 1, 11, 38 through 39, sorry. 
I got Acts 4.11. I got Luke 20.17. I got Psalm 118.22. Peter knew that he was not the rock. He says so. He says that Christ is the rock, 1 Peter 2.6 and 2.7. How can you see? You got Peter himself. All you have to do is, if you think Peter is the rock and he's the rock upon which the church was built, all you have to do is go to Peter uh, 2 through 4 or 2 4 through 2 8, and he says he's not the rock. Christ is the rock. So why do so many, and there are millions, so many think Peter is the rock? They do, they think something, but they're wrong. I I agree with you that they think something. It's because they don't know the Simeon prophecy. Yeah, I used to do the Simeon prophecy on all every Passover lecture. Simeon the Cyrenian, he comes and pick and carries the crossbeam of Christ. Why does he do that? He's part of the Simeon prophecy, and they don't know the Simeon prophecy, and they don't know the rock prophecy. They don't know that the rock is a prophecy. If they did, they would solve a lot of problems. They don't trace, they don't calculate, they don't collect scripture. They don't know the process. They don't know the mechanism. They don't care. They get their view. They love their view. They don't mind being wrong. In fact, they like being wrong. And that's where we get. The Simeon prophecy is Luke 2.25 through 35. It's Genesis 34.25. It's Mark 3.16. It's John 21.15 through 17. And it's Matthew 27.32. And you're going to note if you go look those verses up, you're going to see a contradiction between John 21.15 and 17 and Matthew 16.16. Very important. If only we had time to go into that contradiction, but we don't. We never have time. Time has us. Why are we subject to time? What is time doing? Are the angels subject to time? When did they become subject to time? Were they always subject to time? How could they tell time? If they're in the heavenly... It's bit stuck. If they're in the heavenly estate and they're unfallen... What was time like for them? As opposed to what's time like for us in this current state that we're in. Time proves something. I've been saying that a lot and I'll keep saying it as as we go through this process because guess who doesn't pay any attention to time? That's right. Yeah, here we are again. The Calvinists don't pay any attention to it. The Armenians don't pay any attention to it and it's absolutely critical to be there. But they don't want it or they don't know. For us fallen humans... We have this connectivity between time and physical death. Those are confederated. Time and death are confederated. And is it the same for the angels? And now we have to get a definition of what death is for an angel, right? So we got Ecclesiastes 3.2 and Psalm 90.10 that will tell us a whole great deal about time and death. Ecclesiastes, uh, most people think Ecclesiastes 3.2 is a, is a song by a rock group, right? Is that... Oh, never mind. It doesn't make sense to anybody but me. Who sang that song, Dave? You know more rock music than I'd ever know. Yeah. It, well, it was pretty pretty famous. But now everybody thinks Ecclesiastes uh, it was written after the song. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's what kind of what passes for theological competence today. Why would the angels need to know about time? Why would they, by what means would they measure time? When did they start measuring time or do they measure time? They absolutely do now. But when did it start? And the, keep in mind the fallen angels are confined right now. Revelation 9 tells you when that, that uh, confinement is over. So are they keeping time? What about 1 Peter 3.19 and 2 Peter 2.4? That's also about the confinement of these angels. And, and Michael and Gabriel, they might be the two angels of Genesis 19.1. What happens in Genesis 19.1? What happens is Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed after a certain period of time. In Genesis, there's a certain period of time in Genesis 6, 120 years. So the angels are definitely involved in Genesis 6. So they're, they're understanding that something is going to happen. Also, the tribulational period, they seem to know quite a bit about it, so they know what the time frame is that. So when did the angels, when did God 
put them into this time structure where they're subject to time just like humanity? And is there a difference? And as I said, Michael and Angel might be those two angels in 19.1. They had to carry Lot's wife off by force before the time of destruction was going to come. And, and Michael, the archangel, he wrestles with Satan over the body of Moses. So if I have the body of Moses being wrestled by Michael, and I have Michael grabbing Lot's wife, then I have somehow the body of Moses connecting to Lot's wife. i got to figure that out in order to have an intelligent, a competent view of what those verses are actually meaning. I used to have a card. I said, pushing back the frontiers of what, what did I say on that card? Biblical illiteracy. If you do not begin to make all of these connections when you're reading the Bible, if you don't say, wow, I've read that word someplace before, I've read, I've seen this before, this seems to be together, why is it together? The Bible obviously is put together with a great intelligent purpose. It's, it's, it's probably infinite in the way it relates to itself. Does the body of Moses connect to Lot's wife? Specifically Luke 17.32 where Christ tells Israel to remember Lot's wife. Well, if the body of Moses somehow connects to Lot's wife, then that helps us understand what the meaning of Lot's wife is. And that, of course, becomes very helpful. And he says to Israel, remember Lot's wife during the tribulation. Lot's wife is a symbol of the abduction of the church. The time of the abduction happens to be hidden. Why is that? You can figure it out. Really, you can. You can figure out how these all do this. Now watch the time. Uh, okay. I need to point out really quickly, Genesis 2.7, John 11.44, Deuteronomy 34.5-6, and Luke 23.53. Because that's where Adam, Lazarus, Moses, and Christ are intertwined. I brought up the body of Moses, didn't I? Okay, we should ask how and why. I brought up the body of Moses and the body of Christ, but you've also got uh, Adam and Lazarus here. Did Lazarus's body decay? And everybody wants to know what happened to the body of Christ and how this all worked. And we got that, we got the towel over his the face cloth, and we have all of that stuff, the wrappings. Did the body of Lazarus decay? Because he's wrapped up and in a grave, right? And he's called out of the grave. Dating decay. Remember, Martha says, was Martha right? Was Martha right about anything? Let's start with that. But was she perfectly right about Lazarus stinking? Because she said he's going to stink, he's going to decay, he's into corruption. Did Christ uh, say that he was? He never said. So if he wasn't, that makes him like Moses' body and Adam's body. I got all four of them, and I probably do. Okay, so that's clue one when you're starting to talk about all these kinds of things. Where am I now? Oh, I'm in the rock prophecy. How did I get there? I don't remember. I'm in Matthew 16. That's how I did it. The rock prophecy is Exodus 17, 6 through 7. That is where the rock is smote. The rock is killed. We have the death of the rock. From the death of the rock comes the living water, Revelation 22, 1. Revelation 22, 1 makes it absolutely certain that Peter is not the rock because from the rock comes what? Living water. If I know that, then who's the living water? That's Christ. So the rock has to be Christ, and it's the death of Christ that gives me living water. Not the death of Peter. How many people got living water from the death of Peter? Not one. So, again, Simeon Peter. Simeon means hearing, the hearing of Israel. Petros means small, tiny stone. That's why Paul attaches to it, because Paul goes from Saul, which is death, to Paul, which is small. That's John uh, 142. I almost said that word or that phrase, but I didn't. I said, does it count if I go? Probably it does. It's a new year. I've got to be diligent. Simeon Peter did not declare Christ to be the omniscient God of creation until his third attempt at John 21:17, where I have the three questions. You see, people get those three questions completely wrong. They make they say the Greek word agape. They you know that means that's a better love than this love or whatever they say. 
none of that makes any sense because you don't know the Simeon prophecy. If you do know the Simeon prophecy, then you know that Peter is in it. Because his name was Simeon and it was changed to Peter. And then all that agape stuff and the, the words are all different. Love, which is a real popular view, is thrown out the window and never heard from again, I hope. Therefore, Christ renamed Simeon Little Stones. He says, you are Peter. Peter means Petros. Petros means little tiny stones. So he says, you've gone from the Simeon prophecy to being little tiny stone. And he calls him Simeon Bar Jonah. Oh no, where are we now? We have a whole... Somebody wrote a whole book of the Bible. What's it called? Yes, that would be Jonah. So what's he famous for? He's famous for the sign of Jonah, Matthew 12, 38 through 43, which is three days and three nights in the tomb. And now we're back to the body of Christ and the body of Moses, the body of Lazarus, the body of Adam. Yeah, here we go again, right? How does it all go? Three days and three nights. And of course, when I'm Simeon Bar Jonah, I'm back in John 21, 17, because that's what... Christ calls Peter there as well, Simeon bar Jonah. And Matthew 16, 17 and 21, 17 and John, bang, they're right there. Figure it out by bringing in John 21, 17 to Matthew 16, uh, 13 through 20. Why would Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, creator of all things, that's Colossians 1, 15 through 18, attach the sign of Jonah to the rock prophecy because that's what he does. He additionally revisits this Simeon Barjona with the questions of John 21, 15 through 23. Do you love me questions? That's the do you love me questions that everybody gets wrong. As well as this he spoke by what death Peter would face for the glory of God, John 21, 19. He tells Peter how he's going to die. Now, why does he do that? Peter says, well, what about John? How's John going to die? And God says, none of your business. Why is the death of John such a mystery? As you know, there are many theologians that have theorized that John never died. He's still alive today. They've made movies like that. They've made all kinds of things about that. Now, that would be incredibly interesting. When Christ says, it's none of your business, I'll take care of it. So, Obviously, the deaths of the apostle was was uh, to be put on display for the angels. So here they're coming back into the situation. When you begin to see, he brings up the death of the apostles. Well, the death of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, is for the angels to be to see that. Why do the angels want to see? Why do they have to see that's fallen and unfallen? All of them see the death of the apostles. Why? Obviously, it proves something. What does it prove? There is this unmistakable symmetry uh, between Matthew 16, 13 through 20 and John 21, 15 through 23 with both containing a link to the sign of Jonah. Uh, as, you, as I said, it, which is the pattern for the death and atonement and resurrection of Christ. So somehow, all of that is there. And the Holy One will not see corruption, of course, is the key verse. That's uh, Psalm 16, 18, 11, Acts 2, 27. In the atonement, the Holy One will not see corruption. So I asked again, did Lazarus see corruption? He's going to be a type of Christ here. Did uh, Moses? Moses' body is buried by God. Nobody knows where it is. And, and Satan and Michael fight over it. And the body of Adam obviously is laying there uncorrupted until the breath of the spirit of life. And that becomes so important. Genesis 2-7 actually solves the Calvinistic problem. They don't know it. They don't understand it, but I will explain it as we go along. Because when you have Genesis 2-7 figured out, and the body of Moses, the body of Christ, the body of Lazarus, the body of Adam, got it all worked out, then you go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Maybe this isn't a problem that the Calvinists think it is. Again, I said last week, can God reconcile? Is there something that God can't reconcile? No, there is not. And so you think you've come up with an irreconcilable problem? You're wrong because nothing, God has no partiality. He's infinite. He's complete. You being incomplete have come up with an incomplete problem. He doesn't have incomplete problems. It's, imp- and I shouldn't say impossible. 
The body of Moses, Deuteronomy 34, 6. Again, brings up uh, Jude 9. Uh, that's another piece uh, that is crucial to gaining a competent level of understanding of why Christ renamed Simeon to Petros, Little Rocks, Matthew 16, 18. Unfortunately, the commentation on this is ugly much. See how much I, I like ugly much? Without exception, the commentators are ugly much here. They focus on the Petros and not the Barjona. They say, ooh, the Petros, the rock. Let's all look at the rock. Here's the Barjona. Look at the Barjona. Look at the I Am. Look at the I Am and then look at the three days and the three nights. No, we want to look at the little tiny rocks. That's us. And they get paid for this stuff. It just blows my mind. I get very frustrated with it, but I can't stop it. It's too late. And I know what you're thinking. Let me say this. Let me repeat this. The rock prophecy, the I am, and the sign of Jonah, those are all bound together by God himself. He did that in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. John uh, 21, 17. And I know what you're thinking because it's my job to know what you're thinking. What are you thinking? That'll make Lori laugh. Maybe. You are thinking that ugly much actually brilliantly makes more sense than pretty much. I know you're doing that. We should never say pretty much because there's hardly any pretty much. There's always ugly much, though. And thus, it's far more utilitarian. It's far more useful to say ugly much. Can I make the whole world start to say ugly much? I'm I'm working on it. I anticipate and await my impending and inevitable reward for ugly much. Can I patent it? I think I might be able to. T-shirts, ugly much. Okay, it won't happen. (laughs) I'm losing my mind. Anyway, Mark 3.16 places Peter into the Simeon prophecy alongside of Matthew 16.17. And if you dismiss Mark 3.16 as inconsequential, if you say, well, that's just a throwaway verse, what's wrong with you? There are no throwaway verses. Mark 3.16 happens to tie up with John 3.16 and 1 Timothy 3.16 and Revelation 3.16 and Genesis 3.16 and... By the way, Matthew 3.16, and they form an astonishing collective. It's amazing. Note that the Apostle John, while he's in heaven, and while he's in heaven, how much, how much is time affecting him? He is seeing a prophecy that is outside of time for him, isn't he? He sees the entire tribulational period. So he saw 1 Corinthians 13.10. What is that? That's That which is perfect is come. So John the Apostle saw the collecting, the Holy Spirit collecting the Scripture. The book that cannot be added to Revelation 22.18-19. A lot of people will say, well, he's only talking about the book of Revelation. He's not because he's in heaven and he saw the whole book. You can't add to it. And if anyone takes away from the book, which is a prophecy, because the whole Bible is a prophecy of Christ, Christ is on every single page. The whole book, again, a prophecy of Christ everywhere. God shall take his part from the book of life. So God says to you, if you take away from this Bible, this perfect that has come, 1 Corinthians 13.10, that John saw formed, I'm taking you your life away. Why does God bring plagues and death to those who attack his that which is perfect to come? Why does he do that? The obvious answer is obvious. If you try to destroy the Bible, that's murder. That's murder. Matthew 23:15, woe to you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte and when he is one you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. The proselyte is murdered. Second death, Revelation 20.14. But what I want to point out, because I am diabolical, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. 
and when he is one. So what do we know now? I should point out that Matthew 23.15 is a shot across the bow of absolute predestination. God Himself reveals that it is possible for Satan and his brood of vipers, because Christ said this to the brood of vipers. That's Christ's word. God Himself is saying, when one, before you travel land and sea to win, and when that, when He is one, so Christ Himself is saying that it is possible to win a proselyte, thus He confirms, He conforms to Ezekiel 28.16 and Genesis 3.4, which is the lie of Satan. The lie of Satan can win proselyte. It can win followers. And when they have won them, they make, they've murdered them, which is the plan of Satan, obviously, in the Antichrist. He's saying that Satan is winning converts. And I want to know, how is it that Satan can win converts? What's the convert winning process? How does it happen? How does it work? Another point, yay, another point. Why did God rename Simeon Bar-Jonah to Little Rocks? Remember that question? Well, I brought it back. Because on the surface, Peter, the small stones, because no, no longer is he Simeon, the hearing, he's now Peter, Petros, the small stones, that says something far beyond his, he says something far beyond his capability. He says, you are the Christ Messiah and the Son of the living God. That's what he says. The second person of the Elohim, he's saying that Christ is in the us of Genesis 1.26.3.22. The Father in heaven, Matthew 5.45.5.48.6.1.6.9.6.14.6.26.6.32.7.11. He is the second person of the Elohim that includes the Father in heaven. So why have I supposedly deviated from the never-ending soliloquy? Can I say soliloquy? Not without water. Soliloquy. So, so eloquy, which has been this analysis of hyper-predeterminism and this fractionable Armenianism, or Armenianism. Okay, why did I do this? Besides uh, Dan the Dimebox man's fault, it's, it's his fault. Uh, three questions, I mean again. Just three questions. How long would it take me to answer three questions? Well, a long time apparently because it's what I'm doing again here. So all scornful jeering should be redirected from me, the ambrosial, highly trained religious professional, AHTRP. You need to send all that, all that booing to Texas for today. Yeah, and my, uh, my strategy, Pinky, was to barely partially illustrate how much evidence needs to be collected to begin to have a shallow view of one verse. That's what I'm trying to do today. One verse. Why do I bring up one verse? Because I find people find they get one verse and they throw out all of the rest of the Bible from it. But you have to go get the rest of the Bible to figure out that one verse. That's the contradiction. Well, they really do hate it, and but it doesn't seem to stop me. But you have to collect, you have to get all the evidence to just to know one view, or I'm sorry, one cursory view of one verse from this perfect book that, Paul, that John saw formed. And I wanted you all to share the consequences of Dan's questions and three answers, so you realize what this what what door he opened here. And I should interject that we see dimly. We know that. Who is dimly? Is, it, is he some kind of, uh, is he a dwarf in the Lord of the Rings or something? I think he is, dimly. But we see, we see dimly, the Bible says. And our translations are not perfect. We don't have the perfect. The perfect, uh, and why do we have this, why do we have translations? Because the free will of mankind, the woman has mixed, she's contaminated the leaven, Matthew 13.33. So she mixes the leaven into the perfect. Why does she do that? How come she's allowed to do it? See, you have big questions right there. What makes her do it? Is she forced to do it? Does God force people to sin? That becomes the question. 
uh, you can't have that position. He says, I don't in James, right? So she does it by some other process, right? Why does she do it? We know that she does do it, but why does she do it? And we have we have the blackbirds in the uh, of the air, Satan's forces, Matthew uh, thirteen four. They have nested in the mustard tree, not the mustard bush. I've said that for thousands of years, okay, thousands of times for a few years. The mustard bush is a mutated corruption of a mustard tree. I'm sorry, I said that back backwards. The mustard bush has become mutated into a mustard tree. How is that possible? It's representing the church. The church completely gets destroyed by, by illiteracy and by pollution. They lose the gospel of Christ completely. They lose the deity of Christ completely. And that the, the mustard bush is now a mutated tree filled with Satan's angels. And how is that possible? How does the enemy attack and get into the mustard bush and destroy it as much as they have? Why does God allow it? Why must, there, why must there be this conflict? We have this conflict. Why has that conflict occurred and why must it be? Okay, now where I am. Where am I? Uh, the teeny, small, tiny stone. That's Simeon, now Peter. So he's a teeny, tiny, small stone. He declares Christ to be the living God. Something that he could never have known. I don't think Satan even knew it at that time. But still, it's something that he blurted out. He blurted out the truth that Christ is the living God, the ego in me and the Aya, the I am that I am. Simeon Bar-Jonah says this again in John 21.17. He concedes that Jesus is the omniscient God there, finally. And once he does, Christ says, okay, now you can follow me. Now you know who I am. You can follow me. He's the infinite one. He's the Aleph Tav. He knows all things, Revelation 2.23 and John 5.22 and Revelation 20.11. Note the distinction here. This is a very important verse that you will find, I think, helpful when you talk to a super determinist. Peter says to him, you know all things. John says he knows all things. Christ says himself that I am the Aleph Tav. I am the infinite one. I know all the hearts and minds. I am the one that knows all the hearts, all the minds. But Simon Bar-Jonah did not say Christ causes all things. He says he knows all things. And what does the Calvinist do? He says because he knows it, he causes it. But that's nowhere in Scripture. And Peter could have easily said Christ causes all things, but he doesn't. Did not say that. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant, Frank Sinatra. Sorry about that. Your way's not working out so good now. John, and if you're doing my way through the Bible, you've got problems. Anyway, John 21.17 never is cited as an issue opposing this concept of God decreeing evil. And maybe today we make a small dent. The rock prophecy is the infinity and omniscience of Jesus Christ. That is the rock prophecy. The living God. And upon that truth, this is the truth that the rock, Christ, will build his church. And notice he says, my church. He says, my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against this rock. No one can destroy the truth of who I am. I am the infinite, uh, omniscient, uh, living God. But again, he says, my church. So if you don't have that view of Christ, you are not in his church. You're not complying with what he says is my church. And when you come across the gates of hell in Scripture in the Old Testament, where are you now? Because he he says gates of hell. When he talks about gates of hell, he's talking about Judges 16. What did he know about Samson grabbing the gates of the city and going up a mountain and throwing them in the valley? He probably does because he knows all things. Carrying the gates up a mountain, tossing them into a valley where they can't ever be gotten again. Those Judges 16 gates... Uh, portray the gates of hell. The living God reference brings it all there. And again, he's the ego in me. He's the ayah. He's the I am that I am. Genesis 28.13. Genesis 28.13 begins with a behold. Because this is where a great truth is going to be revealed. 28.13 is uh, 
Abraham and Isaac, right? No, that's the, I'm sorry, I have that wrong. That is the uh, ladder of Jacob. And And God says, the living God says to Jacob, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. I see it, thank you. I am the God of the living. Because he's the living God, right? That would make sense that he would say that. I am the God of the living. I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew 22:32. Abraham and Isaac are alive. That's what he says there. The gates of death did not prevail and hold them. They're alive. Keep in mind the Aleph Tav, the infinite one who conceived time and holds all time in his hand, who sees all of time at the same time, says that Abraham and Isaac are alive. He would know. So now I'm running out of time. I've got to hurry. Terry held up ten fingers. Remember that Henri Bergson, Bergson, Lecture 189, insisted that time was proof of free will. And time and free will were therefore woven, intertwined. And Bergson thought that Einstein's wedding of time and space was child-level thinking. He called it thoughtlessness and carelessness. Time and free will, that's where the complexity resides, is what he said. And I've said ad nauseum for most of my so-called career that free will is, a pri- is prima facie evidence of existence. You have to have free will. It's, it's so interconnected with existence it can't be separated out. Without free will there is no existence. Only the semblance, the veneer, the pretense of existence. We are, living, we are alive and we're living souls from the God of the living. He would not describe a a automaton is living. He says, we're living souls and he's the God of the living. And and I said last week, I believe that the the Calvinistic position that says we do not have free will makes us us dead. We're dead. We're no different than a machine. I hope I said that. If I didn't, I did it now. Israel regularly accused God of evil, of lying and murder. Exodus 17, 1-7, Numbers 23-6, Numbers 21, 5-6. And Satan, as you know, New Year, as you know, Satan, Genesis 3, 4, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, he originated this concept that God is the author of evil and that he lies and that he is a murderer ultimately because he's going to murder millions of people that had no, no absolute ability to do anything but be murdered in the, in the lake of fire. But it was Satan that originated this concept that God is the author of evil. Ezekiel 28.16, Psalm 10.6-7, Psalm 10.11, Psalm 10.13. And he, Satan says that God lies about this. He lies about existence. More pieces coming out of me. I hope they're food and not other things that are valuable to me. Anyway, Exodus 17.7, we're... we're the, the Israelites are accusing God of, of being evil and the author of evil and a murderer and a liar. They have absolutely co-opted the lie of Satan and they have spit it right back at God. That is not an accident. Uh, Exodus 17.7 7 actually records the Lord God's response to Israel and to the hyper-theological determinists. He does that through Moses. He responds. He asked this through Moses, is the living God among us or not? That's what he asked. Is the living God among us or not? You see, this is the essence of the issue. For if you assert that the living God predestines sin, he predestines evil, there's only, there's only hopelessness now. There's no purpose. It purpose, becomes purposelessness for all those whom he foreknew for this. All this whom he caused their condemnation. And, and believe it, my friends, I would say to you that this is categorical fatalism. It's exactly identical to evolutionary atheism. And I, I got to spice in the disclaimer here that I'm very much aware that I don't have very many friends, if any at all. Is God the author of fatalism? Hopelessness. He is not. What did I eat? Oh, I know what it was. Radishes and it got stuck in my teeth. And it's coming out at an opportune time, I think. Uh, 
when I was at the railroad, you got smoke breaks all the time, and I didn't smoke. But if you didn't have a cigarette, you couldn't play horseshoes. So you know, you have to think about that. So I'm I'm faking it out there, and then of course they told me I could chew snuff. And I thought, okay, I'll try bubble gum, see if they catch me. They did. And they were, cigarettes were free at the railroad. They provided them. They were federal. Yeah, they gave us free cigarettes. And then all of a sudden they decided this is a bad idea <laughs> because it was a mess. I mean, everybody had piles of free cigarettes. Didn't work out so good. <sighs> and then they paid us not to have them. If you didn't have cigarettes, you got more money. That's how the railroad, the federal government operates. Still doing the same thing. Okay, is God the author of fatalism? Now to reword this, the thesis statement here. How is the predestining of sin and condemnation not physical, philosophical fatalism? You have to say it's not if you believe that he is the author of fatalism. How about another easy question? Is God capable of saving all people? If you answer yes, welcome to the doctrine of universalism. Because you have lurched into the subsequent question, which is obvious. If God is capable of saving all people, why doesn't he save all people? Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is definitive. The great white throne judgment. No equivocation here. God does not stutter. God does not save all people. He doesn't do it. Why not? Psalm 36, 5 through 7. His judgments are infinite. They're deep. Deep is infinite. Same word. Same concept. The fact of judgment is another incredible truth that God has not decreed sin. Instead, he was given, he has given existence, true existence, not the counterfeit variety that the absolute determinist holds so dear, not the dreadful horror that John Calvin conceived. He didn't conceive it, he just identified it. Is the living God among us or not? Again, the Israelites were full-blown accusing God of great wickedness, but he said rhetorically, I am among you. Why was, why is God among us? What does that mean? Why is he among the wicked? The people who are accusing him of being a murderer, he is with them. He says he is among us. Again, 17.7 Exodus is a rhetorical question that assumes the positive. If we have no freedom, if we have no existence, why is God among us? Because it makes no sense to be among us unless we have free will and therefore existence. He wouldn't be among us if he had predestined everyone for condemnation or predestined everyone that he so chooses for salvation. There would be no reason to be among us, but he's among us and he says that. Why is God among us? Riddle me that Batman, the super hyper absolutist. Determinists need to reflect on why God is among us, but they never do. Don't know the verses there because they haven't collected it. I propose that the answer to this is pretty simple. Not simple, there's nothing simple, but it's in the behold of Luke 131. What's Luke 131? That's where Gabriel says that the name of the baby will be what? Salvation. You get a, a skittle, young lady. And of course, Matthew 121. Matthew 121 actually lays it out. It gives us the reason that God is among us. Makes it obvious. Can't miss it, but yet it's missed. You're in this debate more than I am. How many times have you heard God is among us being brought up? Never. How about... His name is salvation. And it's not been attached to God is among us, has it? But it belongs there. And then I've got the feast day of tabernacles, also a clue, Revelation 21, 1 through 4, and Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 17. When the prophecy of the feast days of tabernacles, Sukkot, is fulfilled, Revelation 21, Christ says this, I will give to him, i sorry, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely, to him who thirsts. Define freely. I would think that it's free. Now, of course, they say there is no free, right? Christ says, I will give freely. But they say there's nothing, there's no free. There's no free will. Is freely compatible with predestination? 
rhetorical question. In case you missed it, Jesus says it in Revelation 21, 16, and 17. And the spirit of the bride says, come. Oh my gosh. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Those are the words of God. Does the doctrine that declares predestination, does that doctrine say, come? There's no, obviously not. The bride, the bride in that is the spirit of the bride say, come. They say it together. That's incredible. The bride is the church. The church is directed to say, come. Why is, why is the church included with the Holy Spirit here? Because God does that. He includes the church with the Holy Spirit. Why does He do that? Both say, come. Why is it necessary? What's the purpose of the church saying, come? What does that have to do with Genesis 6? What does that have to do with Ezekiel 28:16? What does that have to do with Psalm 10? Just throwing some ideas out there for you. The church is directed to say, come. Whosoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So if you didn't hear it the first time, he says it a second time. The spirit and the bride are both saying, come. Predestinational absolutism says you can't come. You can't. Can't do it. There's no reason for the church to say come because nobody has the ability to come. That's their view. And yet the Holy Spirit and the church together say come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And if you say that you, that you can't come to Christ, then we have a problem. A problem that arises when the astonishing interconnectivity of the Bible is abandoned and shunned. You have a problem because you don't know what else is out there. You don't care what else is out there. You're so focused on your little idea and what you want to believe in order to get along in your church and maybe make elder. I don't know what you're after. Maybe you get a sign that says usher and you get things on your sleeves and you get the hand up. I don't know what you're after. I'm telling you, it won't work. Your way. Again, why not universalism? Because then the wicked ones, the haters of God, would not be subjected to judgment and adversity. Psalm 10. Justice would be subverted. That's why not universalism. You see, there is this Breath of the Spirit of Life, something that the absolution, the absolutionists, I have to be careful how to say that, they don't account for it. The breath of the Spirit of Life is something that they don't account for, Genesis 2-7. If they did, then we would be in a business. The breath of the Spirit of Life, Genesis 2-7, Ecclesiastes 12-7, He gives us the, His breath. And they don't know what it does. They think it does nothing. makes us move. But it does more than just animate the body. Consciousness is also a mechanism. It can do stuff. There are those who propose that our fallen nature has total dominance. What I mean by that, in, in other words, put it another way, what else does the breath of the Spirit of life impact? How much does the soul do in the body? Does it just sit there and wait to, die, wait to get kicked out? Or does it have the capability? Let me put it in another way. Well, I'll get that in a second. They say that we can't do anything because we have a sin nature. And nothing in the, and that it is dominant. Nothing can overcome the sin nature. God won't do it and we can't do it. That's what they say. Does that make sense? There's nothing in us, they say, that can, that can overcome the sin nature. I think that's flawed thinking, obviously. We all have this breath of the spirit of life and this brings capability to overcome the causality of the sin nature, in my view. I think it's obvious. Overcoming the influence of sin is a contribution by the spiritual aspect. It is what the breath of the Spirit of life does. It gives us, it's the living soul and it has power. How powerful is the living soul? How powerful is the breath of life, the Spirit of life? What else does this breath of life, the Spirit of life, how does it, what else does it, does it do? How much does it interact? I'm suggesting that it does a lot that it overcomes our sin nature.
And when he says drawn, that's the Holy Spirit is drawing the spirit of man, right? The church is drawing the man, the Holy Spirit is drawing the spirit. Come. Therefore, our free will is not bound by our sin nature. There's a mechanism, if you will. Who thought of that? Genesis 2.7. Somebody thought of that. I'll, I'll go ahead and make this body. I'll put the spirit of the breath of life in there. And then I'll make sure that that spirit of the birth of, or breath of life has power. And that power is going to be very important. Because I've already had the fallen angel. He thought ahead. He's really good at this stuff. They don't think he's thought ahead at all. They think, oh, it's impossible. We got this, and he gave no no structure at all. He never thought of it. My gosh, we thought of something that God didn't think of. But fly. And then again, all men can be drawn. Titus 2.11, John 12.32, by Christ. That is something that is happening in the breath of life. The breath of life contributes to the ability to be drawn and, and to come. Again, God designed a system by which the fallen state can be defeated as the principal factor with respect to salvation, but also Romans 2, 6-7, the seeking of men to do what is good. We have a, men do something that is good. Is there no goodness? I always used to say, why isn't there any good? But there is good. Where does that good come from? Where, what's, what, what's the source of the good? Well, you say God is the source of the good. How did he put it into mankind? By what process? Oh, Genesis 2, 7, 7, 7.15. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Okay? I already covered Romans 3.10. The context of Romans 3.10 is Psalm 14.1. So the people that say the fool, they don't, they don't see the fool in his heart. They just see no one can do anything righteous. But they don't go back to 14.1 of Psalm and see what the context is. The context is not, it's the fool. The fool in his heart says. Final thoughts, cognitations. Hebrews 10:19:31 is commonly utilized by both the Arminian and the Calvinists as a cudgel. They, they beat their proselytes into submission with Hebrews 10:19-31. Usually, it's 10:23. Uh, it's a verse of choice. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope that it will that it waver not. And the Armenians insist that this is evidence of the of the debility of our salvation. The Calvinists promote Hebrews 10.23 as evidence that those who do not hold fast, the waverers, they never were saved in the first place. And once again, both are assiduously wrong. A lack of holding on or wavering is not evidence that uh, you lost your salvation. It is evidence that you are not doing a good job of witnessing. And all, how many of you, raise your hands out there, have never wavered? Come on. We all waver. We, how many of you have held fast your entire time, liar? You have not. Liar. So that means you're not saved? Of course you know better than that. The Calvinist says, well, if you don't, if you waver, well, you never were saved in the first place. That's a common thing they say. So both of these groups have one verse that they love the most, and that's it. Okay, that was a long time, but it's, it's not my fault. It was Dan's fault. 